0: The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my sword person's care package. This includes four eBooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash theswordguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash theswordguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence-King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Tasha Dandelion-Kelly, expert in medieval clothing, who blogs at Lacotte Simple and, in my opinion, knows perhaps more than anyone else on the planet about how a gamazon should be made. So, without further ado, Tasha, welcome to the show.
1: So glad to be here, Guy. Thank you. And, and I just want to say that even though I have spent many years studying this topic, there are at least, I don't know, 10, 15 other people out there who have probably far surpassed my, my efforts to date. Uh, so I just feel I have to throw that in there. Um, it's not false humility. Really, these, these are folks who, who truly put the time in and continue to Um, pretty much on a full-time basis. Whereas I am probably at best an independent scholar who does a deep dive every so often, to be fair.
0: Well, I did say it in my opinion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, So how did you get into making historical clothes? What was the... What was the beginning point? Though?
1: Well, like, like many people, both in the UK and in the US, and even in Australia, I was introduced to the Society for Creative Anachronism uh, in my more youthful years, and I was taken by the splendor, the costuming, the, the wonderful recreations of food, dance, music, and this just piqued my interest, piqued my creativity and imagination, and it sent me down my first set of rabbit holes. Um, and in that time period, I began collecting books, attending online forums, which were very popular in the late 90s when this happened, and uh, just started soaking knowledge up the old fashioned way, um, independent research. I had a degree in English, so I was already pretty accomplished with writing and um, analyzing and synthesizing sources. So I also had a career in technical writing, and I decided to sort of combine these background interests of mine or expertises um, to create a website and to start putting up articles and tutorials about what I had learned. And in doing that, my name obviously slowly began to spread. Um, people began to know my work and give me feedback um, and encouragement, which of course kept me doing it all these years. So that was sort of the beginning, you know, the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism. Um, but over the years, you know, we grow, we change, we do different things, we find new new interests. And um, while I still have many friends in that group, I'm no longer active and haven't been for quite some time um and now i just consider myself an independent scholar of the topic um and i prefer to delve into the academic side of it you know the real research um the experimental archaeology if you'd like to call it that uh recreating garments from extant evidence or from a synthesis of multiple sources and so i sort of i went, started on the costuming side for fun and then eventually just went deeper and deeper into learning the actual truth of what these garments uh did how they were made um and uh it's it's a never ending and never the rewards never end and the challenges never end so here we are that's a lot like
0: a lot like historical scholarship so so But i mean had you always been into needlework or did that did that start when you got to the sca
1: uh not at all i i before that had um, just been pretty much a book nerd, um, somebody who enjoyed going to see bands live at at the local bars in my 20s. You know, I was just a happy-go-lucky person in my 20s who fell into this sort of creative endeavor out of the blue. It hit me like a thunderbolt. And um, I had housemates at the time, as as one often does in One's twenties, and I recall one of them was a violist who I came home one day to her practicing her viola in one of my dresses that I had made for a medieval reenactment. And she was standing there, feeling very proud in one of my sort of princessy dresses, and uh, that was just a, cr- a crowning achievement for me. I thought if I can drag other uh, people into this sort of by sideways fun, then I'm doing the right thing. I, I have something of a reputation of sewing constantly. So,
0: wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm amazed that someone gets as good at sewing as you are without having been like sewing stuff when they were kids.
1: Well, that's actually a good point. I, I had an excellent teacher. She was a friend who just happened to live close by and had taught herself how to draft patterns, uh, flat patterns from measurements of the body. And I begged her to teach me she did and i took that knowledge and ran with it that basic understanding of how to measure key areas of the body and then translate that into pattern pieces on a flat uh, piece of fabric was invaluable and with that i could extrapolate so much more i didn't need a formal education to to do that
0: sure and and to my mind that that does sound like the hard bit it's getting the measurements right because i mean the actual sewing like even I can do a, a reasonably straight bit of backstitch. Right. Sure. So that's, that's, re- but, but the taking a three dimensional thing like a body and then cutting out two dimensional pieces of cloth that all fit together so that they reproduce the shape that fits to the body, that, I mean, that, that goes to places that my brain doesn't go.
1: Fair enough. And, you bring up a good point that it is basically math when you think about it. It's really very much a geometry and spatial relations skill, and it can be developed. Not everyone just springs fully formed from you know the head of Zeus uh, doing this. So for me, it was just it clicked. You know, it clicked. I got it, and I was able to do pretty advanced things pretty quickly. Um, I don't know if everyone can can do that, but you can learn to do that, and. Uh, I have taught many people through the years. I've <laughs> made workshops, you know, where people come, come, sure. you know, 10 people at a time, and, and we do a whole day of this sort of thing, um, or just one-on-one instruction here and there. But it is very time-consuming, and I've done it less as uh, time has gone by.
0: Sure. So. And do you hand-stitch everything, or do you use a machine?
1: No, I really don't. I, For certain projects, of course, you know, doing something for scholarly purposes or oh um, to recreate an historical garment, I would prefer to hand stitch and I do. Um, and those, you know, that takes hours and hours and hours depending on what you're doing. Um, but, but for fun and reenactment, I tend to, um, just use the sewing machine for internal seams, things that will not show on the outside. And then you Mm -hmm. hand stitch all of your hems and necklines and cuffs, the, the, the sort of stitches that are going to show. Uh, you don't want machine sewing on the outside of
0: your garment. Okay. I have a friend who um, makes clothes for reenactment stuff, and she was wearing one of her dresses out of reenactment, and someone came and gave her shit for having machine sewed hems. Mm. But she'd sewn them by hand. They were that okay. regular. They were mistaken for machine.
1: Then she had the last laugh, didn't she? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She absolutely was able to say, ah, thank you for this wonderful compliment. (laughs) Hand stitching, actually. Yes. Well, Um, nobody should do that. I I do not approve of um, people, you know, the the kids these days use the phrase yucking your yum. You know, just live and let live. I mean, obviously, if you're a group that has strong requirements, We'll say for the way you have to appear fine you know but but going up to somebody and offering criticism like that is a real joy killer i think
0: (laughs) oh oh yeah Yeah. yes the person was clearly an ass Uh, there we go um (laughs) okay now your your blog is called la cot simple um and that's c-o-t-t-e for the listeners um what is a cot simple (laughs)
1: Well, we should probably start with uh, understanding what a coat is. Uh, okay. It's a, it's sort of an archaic spelling for what is the modern day word coat. And mm-hmm. obviously the French spelling of that. And it stands for a garment that both men and women were wearing very commonly in the 14th century, especially. Um, it's basically just a, a coat like garment, often with an opening in the front. Um, sometimes buttoned down the center front closure, usually fitted sleeves. Um, men's would range anywhere from mid thigh down to the ground. Women's uh, would always be pretty much ankle length or longer depending on the use and the location and the the, the class, etc. cetera. Um, but this is, this is an all purpose garment that was worn on the outside of your underclothes so that it was what the people around you could see. It wasn't an underclothing layer. And what made a coat a simple coat or a sample coat was that it did not have a lining. It was a simple coat. It was not one that had, say, a fur lining or a silk lining or in some way a more structured and therefore expensive and fashionable garment. So that's, that's where I came up with the, the name. I don't know if in the scheme of things that name was great for SEO or, you know. (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) No. No, I mean, it was but 2003. I don't think I was thinking about this too much then.
0: I didn't think we had SEO in 2003. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so so it's a un, an unlined kind of gown like coat sort dress. of dress, um, a dress. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, what made you pick that for the name for your blog? Was that what um, you were making at the time? Or?
1: Yeah, Well, yes, that is. Um, I was at the time making what we'll call a bust supportive version of this dress. It was um, something that another independent scholar who folks in the historical clothing community know well. Her name is Robin Netherton. Uh, she had pioneered sort of a way to recreate this style that was seen in the manuscripts where women had these very form-fitting dresses that were clearly holding the bust at uh, like, like a prow of a ship. Like, you know, everything was very supported and uh, right up there, very pert and on display. And um, she came up with a method for draping fabric on the body to recreate this, this tight style. And um, I was very interested. So, and I, I couldn't, go to one of her workshops at the time. She barely had any and she was far away. I think she lives in um, Missouri in the US. And so I just thought I'm going to try this myself. I'm going to try to figure this out from her written notes on, on online forums, which is what I did. And I iterated with with friends and tried it out and got to a place I felt like I had, I had succeeded. And that was the point where I realized I really need a web page to put my results up and I had been a technical writer at the time so I had the ability to write instructional steps uh, that was sort of I could do that in my sleep. so I thought, why don't I take photos and web this and be sort of the first to do that since nobody had done it yet and teach other people through the web this wonderful new thing that we're all enjoying here in the early 2000s. And um, I just thought what could I name the site that you know gives a little nod to my interest? In French medieval culture, and also refers to clothing and specifically the type of clothing I'm making, which were at the time unlined, mostly linen, uh, fitted dresses that laced up the front to hold everything in nice and tight. And I thought, this is, this is a good name. It wasn't a good name, but now it's, it's <laughs> too late now. It's too late now.
0: <laughs> it's
1: been, you know, 19 years. So.
0: Yeah. It so yeah, a bit, bit late <laughs> for a rebrand. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so the Poor Point of Charles de Blois. Oh, right. Yeah. It's like one of the one of the more famous garments. But I'm I'm guessing that the average listener doesn't have a deep technical knowledge of medieval clothing at all. So if you wouldn't mind sorry, so what exactly is a paw point?
1: Okay. So, so that's an excellent question because I have a mea culpa forever and ever about this word. And that is. Okay. That I was one of the people early on who pushed a definition for pourpoint that was very incorrect. But all of we English speakers had this misunderstanding. And that was that it was defined from the words pour and point, like for pointing in French and it's oh, for, for tying things it. onto. Right, for tying something. So that isn't it? Because no, in the back really of happen. my head,
0: that's what I thought it meant.
1: Right, many people still do. And, and I'm partially to blame from those early forums I mentioned. I was out well, there. Well, you, you can make up for it up. now. I'm trying. <laughs> Tell so, us the truth. Tell us the truth. Yes, so the truth is, I, I had a great conversation with a very learned uh, French colleague who explained to me that, in fact, it was derived from a Latin root for for piercing. In other words, quilting. So it's perpunctus is the word that it originally evolved from etymologically. And that basically just means pierced many times. So you're basically sewing in and out long channels of quilting. So a pourpoint, in the actual French original term, simply meant a garment that was quilted and likely padded. Because usually when you had quilting, it was because you were holding padding in place. So that is what the garment means. It's a garment that's basically padded and quilted.
0: So not well, a garment for it. tying stuff to, not at all. And that's a shame. so <laughs> But you so, you do often tie stuff to poor points.
1: You do. You can. Yes. And in fact, the original Charles de Bois, which you mentioned, has mm. ties uh, attached to it, sewn to it on the inside around the waist, sort of the waist hip level, and the the understanding is that that's to hold up some either some joined hosen or some what they call tailed hosen which are form-fitted leggings. You're going leggings. to have to tell us what those are. Yes, Okay, joined hosen. Sure, joined hosen are uh, ta- uh, they're leggings that were worn by men at the time. They went all the way up the leg and uh, wrapped around the entire uh, groin and, and backside and covered sort of like pants, but they were just a lot more form-fitting. And mm-hmm. um, there's a controversy about when this style became common in medieval Europe.
0: So hang on. so they're joined as in the two legs are joined together at the top.
1: Correct. Yes. Thank right, you okay. for getting to that. Yeah, so so what we think happened was this started as leggings that were separate, just leggings that came up to the thighs, and then had holes, little eyelets at the top where they could be tied to a belt that held your underwear up. Your underwear, which we might call braise, um, had a belt inside, a channel that would keep them around your waist and there'd be little slits cut in the channel so that you could get to the belt on either side where the hips are and tie your hosen to the braise. And this was a very common way for men to keep their legs covered. That's underneath. that's how my
0: medieval gear works.
1: Okay, there you go. Yeah, this and so that's a very well documented there's no real controversy around that. Uh, where the controversy comes in is as the 14th century progressed and the hosen got tighter and taller, and the the men's coats got shorter uh, to the point where they were grazing the the bottom of the you know the, the nether regions, the undercarriage, we'll call it. The the hosen got more and more form fitting in that area and covering more of that area instead of letting the braid sure. peek
0: out because they kind of have to overlap a bit.
1: Right. And that's where the term tailed hose comes in, which is really just invented by we researcher, reenactor, enthusiast types to describe what we believe was an interim step, which is that the first the fabric rose up over the hips and began to wrap around. And then eventually it joined in the back, center back, and then in the front. And that's when the cod piece first came into existence, it was, you know, like basically a rectangular, or excuse me, a uh, triangular piece of cloth that covered the front of a man. And that's how we get to joined Hosen. So the question is, when did that truly happen? Uh, We have pictorial evidence that implies that it was either very well covered tail, tailed Hosen, or perhaps even joined Hosen by the 1360s. We just don't know for sure, wow, that's pretty early. but we think it could be that early. I'm I'm a proponent of the join being earlier than than uh, not. And there's okay. there's an excellent um, German paper on this, um, which if I can afterwards, I can maybe get you a link if, if it's on Academia or one of those. Sites. Yeah, please, we'll put it um, in the show notes. We can try that.
0: Charles de Bois had this pourpoint, which yes. had these um, points for attaching hose of some description to. Um, Could you just let the listeners know, of course, because of course I know all of it already, because I researched it in depth and detail <laughs> by reading your blog. Um, who is Charles <laughs> de Bois um, and what exactly is his porpoise? What is it like?
1: Okay, so he was a nobleman in France who, when he died, the monks of Angers, France, France had preserved his porpoise and a hair shirt, because he was very devout, uh, in the hopes of having him canonized a saint eventually. I don't believe that ever fully, yes, and I don't believe that ever fully happened. Um, I think they got partway, but I don't think the process was ever completed. And over time, that hair shirt has disappeared, sadly. But the original note that was written uh, by the monks who were preserving the Porquant still exists, and that's been documented in several journal articles so we know that that garment is from approximately 1364 I want to say um, so it's not a later garment as some scholars have claimed it's it is from the time of his death and that's why it was preserved so well because they were keeping it safe for many years um, and what that so oh, go ahead yeah
0: go why ahead. why would they keep his jacket to help making the saint?
1: Well, the, in this time period, there was a long tradition of preserving items from somebody who was considered saintly, so that if they became saints, there would be something reverential to... So
0: observe. they could have cut it up into a thousand pieces and sold each, each bit pieces. as a relic of St. Charles himself.
1: <laughs> That's very cynical of you, Guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not but far off, though, correct. am I? You may be
1: correct, yes. You may. <laughs> you may. So, yes, yeah, so that's why it was preserved. We're so okay. glad it was because sure. it is an incredibly complex and deviously brilliant form of tailoring. Uh, that, that's why we all obsess about it so much in this community because it was made from many, many pieces. It's a way of, of cutting fabric and piecing it on the body that is not used today anywhere. It's, it's a long, dead Uh, form of tailoring. And what makes it special is what's called the grand assiette, and that translates roughly to large plate. And what that refers to is the extremely deep set armholes that were cut. Uh, We're talking really wide circles that go almost from the, pretty much from the clavicle all the way under, you know, down almost to the bottom ribs, all the way up the middle of the back and over the top of the real close to the neck. So what that does is it creates this space that has to be filled in with flared fabric. And that flare in the fabric provides an incredible range of motion to a physically active person. In this time, of course, it was a man, but in my recreations, I have found that it also works really well for women and especially busty women. So that sort of flared fabric fitted into that gigantic armhole is just brilliant. It, it works great. It looks good. It makes everyone look good. Who wears it? <laughs> um, and I do hear that from people who have used, I have a pattern that I sell. It's a, more like a book, a pattern book uh, that describes how to make one of these and gives you a pattern that you can cut out, tape together, and then use to make one of these in your size. Um, and they all report back how much it works for them. And we're talking every kind of body shape. It works for everybody. It just requires tweaking because it is a complex pattern. Sure. Um, and so the reason this comes up usually in, say, martial circles, people who like to recreate uh, historical European sword fighting and the like, is because this upper body configuration is so comfy and extremely versatile and great for physical activity it's it's it makes a wonderful wrestling jacket it makes a fantastic Gambison, it can be adapted for all of these techniques and you can feel like you're doing something that would have been accepted in the time period that you're studying as well
0: so was his poor point um an arming garment of any kind or was it was it for show? Was it for like you know, feasts and whatnot? What
1: that? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I'm pretty certain that there was nothing martial about this garment. This was a okay. what we'll call a civilian or peacetime sort of fashionable garment that he was wearing. Um, we don't have evidence of um, any of the sort of stains that one would expect to see in a garment that had been used martially, certainly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, there aren't the kind of points that might have been installed on an arming garment that's intended to be worn, say, underneath armor, which that would be the only way yeah. this could have been worn, would be under the armor because it is so form-fitting.
0: Yeah, my, my arming jacket has lots and lots and lots of eye holes in it exactly for putting points through to tie bits of armor on.
1: Exactly, um, yeah.
0: think it's exactly. lacking that, you'd, you'd wonder how the armor would stay on.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So so it was okay. just originally a lightly uh, padded and then quilted and simple uh, horizontal... I, well, not horizontal I mean it is horizontal but the lines are uh parallel to each other so it's a very simple quilting pattern throughout the entire garment and that's why we call it a prop-on, because it is just a quilted it's quilted quilted garment yep
0: okay and I'm all right in thinking you you traveled and actually inspected it yourself
1: well I inspected it through glass I did not get a chance yet in this lifetime to take it off of the form and and do a hands on uh. inspection of the Charles de Bois. I have done, I've written a lot about it. <laughs> My website sure. is full full of uh articles, speculative articles in which I uh derived the width of the fabric that was used to cut the original um and just in general discussing the grand assiette and how it works. Um, as I mentioned, I have this pattern book that I sell that helps people remake them themselves. But that one, that one garment is not one that I've taken off of a, of a mannequin and actually examined myself. I've only seen it in person. So once. have you had a
0: chance to examine any medieval clothing in person? Uh, yes. Yes, I have. Tell so us about things.
1: it. <laughs> well, I'll start first by mentioning there is a mysterious arming garment that's at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. In Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, in the U.S., that is purported to be somewhere between the 14th and the 17th century. Um, It has not been carbon-14 dated to confirm one way or the other, but I was able to examine it many years ago. I would say probably 2006, somewhere in that time frame. And my feeling is that it's from the 15th century. (laughs) Um, but. But I'd have to go back and examine it again because I lost all of my notes, Guy. I was very sick the day that I examined it. I was just – I had a cold, but I was determined not to miss my opportunity. And I showed up like a bad person who should not do that because when you have a cold, you should not be around other people. But I did, and I examined it. This is pre-COVID. by Yes, right. It's after COVID
0: people care about this. Pre-COVID, this was normal behavior. Everyone did it. You're right.
1: So I think you're all right. But but I really – I just – sabotage myself because I was so foggy-headed, I managed to lose my notes almost immediately. (laughs) So I would like to re-examine that one and maybe one day write something about it. I do occasionally uh, touch base with the curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and um, ask if I can get in there. And I've been told that the conservators are very strict about what gets taken off of the mannequins, so that hasn't happened yet. But the other garment that I was able to study is uh, one that I affectionately refer to as Red Charlie so that okay. I can differentiate him or him I'm, <laughs> I'm gendering this garment um, well, I, is, it, is it a
0: man's garment? It
1: is a bo- it's a young boy's garment
0: Fine, then, then gendering yes. it I think is perfectly there we go. legit.
1: yes It was the future king of France, uh, Charles VI uh, as a child so purportedly wore this little red coat armor that is held at uh, the Musée de Beaux-Arts in Chartres-France. And that garment is on display there, or at least it it has been. I don't know if it is right now, but it is this very small, for an eight-year-old, or I'd say eight or nine-year-old child, very thin would have worn this. And it would have been most likely what they call parade armor in the sense that it would have been uh, for display, for courtly activity. Um, Obviously an eight or nine-year-old is not actually going to battle. But there's no way this garment would have fit anybody older. Um, My son at the time that I was recreating this garment after examining it was seven and he could barely fit it. So that sort of, you know, led my understanding of how old this kid had to be when this happened, when he was wearing this. And that garment, I was able to study with the help of the Antiquary Society um, there in England. They gave me a grant to travel After I submitted my proposal and had permission to go take this one off of the mannequin and actually study it. So I I went in 2011 and um, took a few friends to to help out, and we spent a few hours with it and measured it to to the point of like, you know, every single measurement I could take um, and all the details of the construction. I had some insights that were new to me, um, which had been the whole purpose of taking that garment off the off of the mannequin was was how was this thing made so that it created this amazing chalice-like silhouette that is so iconic in the late 14th century and I got those answers. by so, so how studying. was it made? It was complex. It was quilted in multiple layers of fabric that were then placed together after the quilting assemblies were, were completed. So It's hard to describe, but I'm going to do my best. Um, If you start with a taut base layer and the best way to do that is with the frame. You know, we have embroidery frames from this time period and I am very convinced there were quilting frames as well or maybe the same frames were used for both, right? And so you'd stretch this taut rectangle of fabric uh, on there and then you would place on top of it padded channels in the shapes you wanted and you'd stitch fabric over and around those channels. So in other words, you're not stitching first and then stuffing. You are right. building topography on a flat surface to create a 3D silhouette that you cannot create any other way, really. Um, and the complexity of these channels with their curves, their variable height, their variable width, is... Um, this is something that you cannot easily do without building it basically up from a yeah. surface. So that I, was my big revelation.
0: <laughs> the, the only making stuff I do in the physical realm is woodwork and mm-hmm. thinking about how I would make something like that. Like you, yeah, building it up and then covering it. It's a bit like how, how we occasionally use veneers to create curved surfaces. Oh, interesting! So you 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 have your your stable base, and then you create whatever shapes you want on top of it, and then you cover that with a thin sheet that's the the thing you want people to actually see.
1: That's a really interesting, sort of cross pollinating thought. Yes, I I, hmm. I like it. And so once I oh yeah, go ahead.
0: Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm one of those people who, when I go to a museum that has interesting furniture in it, um, I I will like crawl underneath a desk and look up to see how they put it together from underneath. And, oh, and yes. you know, I, I usually I usually let the custodian know that I'm about to do this and I won't touch it. Don't worry, it's perfectly fine. And I'll just sort of crawl underneath and have a look, and maybe shine a light from my phone up and have a go, Oh my God, they've they've put it together this way. Oh that's fascinating. And I'll come out and everyone picks oh, yes. I'm a lunatic, but but I'm every sure woodworker <laughs> understands exactly what I'm talking about. Oh,
1: yes. And, and I, have, I have upset many a docent by being a little too enthusiastic in the examinations <laughs> at museums. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, yes. So. so
0: the temptation to take Red Charlie apart must have been extreme.
1: Oh, my goodness. I would have loved to be able to pick a few scenes and actually look yeah. at the padding and see sort of how it had clumped through the, through the ages. Um, and just to confirm my theories, but, but I was able to feel it. You know, I, I spent hours touching it and feeling it, being able to rub the layers together so I could see how the layers. Oh, interacted. Wow. Um, okay. And it was, here's a side note that the curator, when, when he took, Little Red Charlie off of the mannequin. He literally just unzipped it. It's buttoned from top to bottom, and he just went Brr, and. He didn't. <laughs> he did, and the three of us there just—we all gasped.
0: <gasps> this collective. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, but but a bun could go flying across the room. Right. So it just. And then aside. what do you do? <laughs>
1: Curators curators have a different attitude, I suppose. Or maybe it's just know, French curators. I don't it's know. Funny, it's
0: funny, it's the same thing, like I have I have a couple of interesting books in my house. I have a Capo from sixteen ten, I've got a Fabris from sixteen oh six, I've got a Marotta oh, wow. from fifteen sixty eight, right? And when people come to my house, I will you know, hand them the book, one of these books, so mm-hmm. they can they can click through it. And the usual response is, Don't I need gloves? I'm like <laughs> no, it's a book. You can pick it up and you can, right. you know, as long as your hands are dry and clean.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, fine. this this was uh, quite the awakening to the difference between how we were planning to treat the garment versus how he was uh, thinking or, or treating the garment. Um, and, and so that day was just a highlight of my life, obviously. <laughs> is, I will always look back on that as just a magical dream come true to be able to A, handle the garment for that long, and B, actually learn something new and bring that knowledge back into the world. Because until then, I don't think anyone had written in any detail about that particular quilting technique. And uh, I did write an article after that uh, and submitted it to Waffen und Kastenkunde, which is you a know, very respected um, journal out of Germany that publishes in multiple languages, including English. And uh it specializes in that intersection of martial topics and textiles. So it's perfect.
0: Oh, right. Perfect.
1: Perfect uh place to, to publish, yes.
0: Okay, so what about the garment told you that it was put on a quilting frame and then the quilt the quilting material was laid out and maybe stitched down a bit and then the top layer was put down on top. Yeah, how did you, how did you get that from the garment?
1: So the way I got that was in the in the physical examination. As I was feeling around, in uh, feeling what the shapes were mm-hmm. and where the stitching went, it was clear that the stitching was not going through any padding. It was just stitching the layers of fabric together and so that told me right away that there were these channels in which there were padding rather than just laying down a sandwich of padding and stitching through it and so that was the first revelation is oh okay so this is channeled padding not a sandwich format of padding where it's all just layers laid flat and then stitched through so once I realized that and I was looking at the complexity of the curves and the variability of that height and width of the channels I thought how would How would I do this? How would I sew this up? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I I don't think I could pre-plan this correctly where I'd have the channels being, you know, sort of loose before the padding went in there. There was no way to understand how that, how to lay that out and stitch it without the padding already being in place. And then I realized that the two, the interior uh, lining layer, and the exterior fashion layer were mirrors of each other. They both had the same design and stitching method going on and the padding was the same in both of them exactly were mirrors of each other. And there was this, when I rubbed the two layers together, I could feel it was basically flat on the inside. There were no bumps or ridges on the inside. and it all just had, kind of came into my mind. the cross section of it, which was this deep is, it, cross is it
0: three section. layers? Is it is it is it lining padding and then exterior layer, or is it lining padding interior layer padding exterior layer?
1: The first thing it's it's basically okay. that that taut layer. Then there's yeah. padding. And that's there's, so that's this, the lining. Yes. Well, both right. of them. They both had the same. Well, let me back up. The lining was was three different materials. There was a flat layer, the padding, and then one more linen yeah. layer over that. The Top layer was that repeated, but with one more layer of fabric on the top that was silk. So it, it came to a total of seven layers. Three wow. comprised the lining, four comprised the, uh, the, the outward facing fashion side. And that's just the body. The sleeves were done slightly differently. Uh, they were they started the same way with the flat taut layer and then the padding and then the linen shaped over it. And then the makers just turned that over. And instead of making a whole new fresh taut layer upon which the topography was built, they just used that same piece and stitched the fashion layer right on top of it. And then they offset the stitching by like a few millimeters so that it wouldn't show through on the other side. Um, wow and, this, and the, so the sleeves are slightly less. Uh, they're a little a uh, little less um, thick, one less layer of fabric. And that's how wow. it, it was made. And this was all described in a very basic way in the original museum catalog and it left people vaguely knowing mm-hmm. that these layers existed but not knowing how they worked and why why did we have all these layers? what what was really going on there? So that's why that inspection in person, was necessary to satisfy sure. geeks like myself who, who wanted to know exactly how this all came together and and was made.
0: Here's a really extraordinary thing that must have taken a long time, right? I mean, even so you, have, you have yeah, you have several crafts people working. Um, even so, it's going to take a while. And you have a kid; I have two kids. Buying shoes for children—it's you're shooting at a moving target. yeah yeah. Um, so but this incredibly sophisticated piece of clothing is made for a child who is presumably growing
1: yes and I can how the hell
0: did they make it so that it fit
1: I can predict about um so so we had of course in this time period there were apprentices journeymen and Mm -hmm. experts or masters and guilds and, and I'm sure that this was originally created by the King's armorer, who probably had um, a whole group of people just for such tasks to sit around and sew all day long. And in my recreation, it took me about 200 hours without expertise. And so I'm thinking that with expertise and experience, this would probably have been reduced to about half that time. So about a hundred hours, sure. maybe 150 depending. And you know, when you have four or five people doing different uh, sections of the mm-hmm. of the patterns um, on their own little frames, you could knock this out very quickly. because uh, so, again, labor was much cheaper, right? It, yeah. It was, uh,
0: it was And I you know the ass the King of France, you can probably afford it.
1: And that too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. So yeah, huh. I would I would guess they could have knocked this out easily in a week.
0: Easily. Wow. Oh, yeah yes. okay, Yeah, your math your mass adds up. But <laughs> What's it's that? astonishing to th- your math adds up. Yes. but it's yeah. astonishing to think of that level of clothing being produced that quickly. Right yeah,
1: it's not, not, not,
0: it's, not even it... not even a seven year old grows that fast.
1: Right, exactly <laughs> exactly.
0: Yes. Okay. now actually I, I skipped over something that I'm actually very curious about, right? Sure. Um, back to the Charles de Bois pourpoint, How does the elbow hinge work?
1: Oh, I, I used that term. I made that term up, uh, so, when I was studying it to, to be able to blog or, or post an article, uh, about the horizontal seam that you see in the Charles de Bois sleeve at just above the elbow where the bottom piece, the piece that forms around the forearm also cups the elbow. And the way it's designed is when your elbow is bent, there's this perfect gorgeous little pocket that is available to your elbow so that you can bend your arm with no constriction whatsoever. And as anyone who's worn a very tight sleeve knows, the elbow gets it worse. You know, when you try to bend your arm, you cut off your circulation, it's a little tight, it's hard to do. And so the purpose of that, what we'll call the elbow hinge, was to form that pocket um, just below that seam. And uh, when your arm is straight, it's not a particularly attractive look. It's a bit of a pouching fabric that just sticks out from the... Yeah, yes. I remember once uh, getting on a video call with a guy who was trying to recreate that sleeve. And he, he said, that I just am having terrible trouble making it fit correctly. There's this terrible pouch. And he put it on. And I said, okay, now bend your arms at a 90 degree angle. And he did. And the, and the fabric just smoothed out perfectly right over the elbow. And I said, now look, look at your elbow. And he looked and the look that came over his face was priceless. It was, you know, the little exploding yeah. head emoji where he realized, oh, I get it now. That's, it's supposed to be like that.
0: Yeah. it's <laughs> so the um, elbow and it's, is that pocket. It looks it looks good when the arm is bent and it does not look good when the arm is straight. Right. So of course, one must always pose right. with bent arms. Otherwise, you know, you ruin the cut oh, of the jacket. <laughs> absolutely. And
1: the original, the original garment is on a shaped mannequin that displays all these tailoring techniques at maximum perfection. So the human right. body doesn't, always naturally look the way the museum mannequin has that (laughs) garment looking. Yes. That's a good
0: point. (laughs) Of course, I am, as you can, you can see what I'm wearing you can probably tell I'm not much of a clothes person really. Um, But my, so my area of interest when it comes to clothes is primarily about use, right? I'm very much sort of function oriented and, By far, the most expensive clothes I've ever bought have been clothes to fight in because they need to be tailored and they need to fit Mm -hmm. just right, they need to move just right and what have you. So, um, but what I'm getting from this is that the same level of attention to ability to move was being paid to non-fighting garments as for fighting garments. Yes, and
1: there's an ongoing theory, conversation, what have you, uh, around which inspired which. Was it the military need that inspired the peacetime fashions, or was it the peacetime fashions inspiring the military? Uh, I think it came from the martial end first. I think that informed um, peacetime fashion, because there's always been clout around being an accomplished martial Expert, and certainly in that time period, there was, especially among the upper classes. So it makes sense that the necessity that was, you know, these things caused these designs to crop up out of necessity uh, would just transfer into uh, social and fascia- fashionable circles as well and symbolize a form of virility and masculinity at that time. Sure. And that's how we yeah, ended up yeah. with things like padding. Go
0: ahead. Yeah, because, I mean, you simply would not wear clothes you couldn't fight in if you had to go and fight, right? It's like, you know, if there are, there are all sorts of stories of, uh, like, Napoleonic soldiers, like, hacking bits out of their clothing so they can move properly, right? Oh, interesting. Um, and, and you see in Fiore, in for example, um, in the Getty manuscript, at least, you can see where the points that hold the back of the hose to the... Waistband that we talked about earlier have been undone because it allows greater freedom of movement in the legs, right? So, right. and those are tailed, there's, husbands, there's, by the way, the, the,
1: those guys are all right. Tailed there we husbands. go.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. the there's an absolute requirement that you're able to move in the stuff that you're fighting in. And if you get used to wearing clothes like that, you're probably just not going to want to put on clothes you can't move in because it's annoying, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's there's, there, I don't, there isn't that same sort of strict military-civilian distinction back then. So the clothes that a well-known general would wear would, would reflect his generalship as much as they'd ref, reflect anything else.
1: Yes, I, I, I would say that's a fair statement. <laughs> um, and, um. you know, I have written about sort of that crossover between the two. That's somewhere on my website as well. Um, I think I called it martial Beauty. Uh, padding and quilting one's way to the ideal silhouette or something like that. Uh, You know, I I like flowery titles. Um, But yes, I'm preoccupied with that very topic. So you can read more on my site.
0: (laughs) Yes, and and I (laughs) think people who are particularly taken by this topic, they're just going to go to your site and just just brain dump the whole thing because there's there's an awful lot there to choose from. Okay, now (laughs) I was chatting with my friend Jessica Finley and Mm. mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you and she has a much deeper knowledge of medieval clothing and whatnot than I do, obviously. Um, and she said, I should get you to talk about bias cut um, with reference to the finds made at Lengbeck. So <laughs> <laughs> you have your brief. Firstly, what Thank is you. bias cut?
1: <laughs> okay. So, so when, when people refer to something cut on the bias or bias cut, it means that the fabric was turned at a 45 degree angle uh, so that the grain of the fabric, which is the sort of up and down, back and forth uh, of the weaving uh, is turned at an angle and is sort of diagonal to to you standing on earth. And so that diagonal cut, when you cut something in that shape, it causes stretch. And stretch is valuable for things like, we. We've spoken about hosen Um, Mm -hmm. in this time period before there was very fine, fine knitting. uh, The stretch was achieved by turning that fabric at a 45 degree angle and cutting the shapes from it and then sewing it together so that the fabric would stretch. And uh, I think she's referring, I think she's probably thinking about some research by um, Marion McNeely, who uh, studied at great length a, uh, a couple of fragments from Langberg uh, in the company of some other researchers named Rachel Case and uh, Beatrix Nutz, who's the original archaeological uh, professional on that, on that site. And Marion uh, recreated this fragment of a dress from the late 15th century, which is when these finds are basically dated to, uh, that had that technique applied. There was a, a very deep uh, set of uh, pleats that were going to be put into this dress, I guess. And so they turned it at a 45-degree angle, and that made the whole process more fluid, we'll say, on the body because of that stretch. Um, and what makes that interesting and sort of relatable back to sort of the martial garments that you know Jessica studied, that I've studied, um, is that we are talking about you know, humps of fabric that are similar to pleats. Um, There's this grouping and, and hunching of fabric over, in our case, padding, that the question is, should this have been done in a bias cut piece of fabric or should this be done with the fabric facing the straight grain, you know, just up and down and across horizontally. And in the case of the garments we've studied, this was done with straight grain, it was not turned on the bias. Um, and if you think about it, that makes sense. Um, bias adds... It's not, not going to
0: stretch. Uh, yeah, if it's quilted, it's not going to no, stretch anyway.
1: Right. You actually don't want it to stretch when you're dealing with a garment. Yeah. You You want things to be really sturdy and to stay in place. And the best way to do that is with the fabric as straight grain as possible. So I know that might be a little jargony, but hopefully folks followed what I was saying.
0: Okay, and I... Many moons ago, when I was buying my first set of medieval hose, must be in the nineties, um, there was there were two options, and one was bias cut, and the other was not bias cut. And the chap there obviously explained to me that okay, the thing about the bias cut is because you're cutting stuff at an angle to the way the fabric is actually woven, it's a it uses up a lot more fabric than if you just have it straight. But in this case. The hose is much less likely to split if it's bias cut. So he was he was making an argument for durability, which I guess is related to the stretch. Because the reason it doesn't split is because it can stretch. Um,
1: okay. And you and we were talking just about the elbow hinge, and you know the knee needs a hinge as well, right? The knee bends yeah. pretty extensively, so you need to be able to do that without cutting off your circulation. So you yeah. absolutely have to have that stretch. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Very okay. much necessary. And now
0: Lengberg, that's the place where they found, they, they dug up the floorboards to do some plumbing or something and found a whole bunch of 15th century clothing just stuck under the floorboards. That's correct, right. yeah? Right, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else has come out of Lengberg that has piqued your interest?
1: Well, one of the most fascinating things was the... Uh, fragment of what we'll call a long-line bra. Um, At the time, there had been no understanding of any supportive undergarment worn beneath those dresses I mentioned earlier that were bust supportive. And uh, this this bra fragment was apparently created with with literal cups sewn into a piece of fabric so that the bosom could be uh, lifted and separated in the style that one sees in many of the illustrations and paintings from that time period, especially in Central Europe in the Germany area. And so these finds were in the Tyrol, um, which is basically, you know, southern Austria, Northern Italy, and uh, it all checks out as far as the way the the female form was portrayed in the in the figural art of the time, and uh, this was just a huge find for for clothing historians uh, because it showed that indeed there had been this method of uh, containing and shaping the bosom underneath the clothing, uh, at least. By the late 15th century. Um, but there are other telltale signs that this could have well been in use earlier. Uh, there's There are um, statements from sort of moralizing religious figures bemoaning women's use of Okay,
0: methods. So, so, in like 15th century or whatever, a bunch of uptight priests are moaning on about women shouldn't be wearing bras because. I don't know sin and the devil. Okay, something like and that. And then, is. and then, because gravity works on everyone pretty much the same, women have been wearing bras since forever. Because why wouldn't they? <laughs> but then, in the nineteen sixties, you get feminists burning the bra as like, no, this is a fi- this is this is this is patriarchal oppression. So six hundred years before, you've got patriarchal oppression means no bra. And then by the 20th century, you've got patriarchal oppression is you have to wear a bra. So, yeah, what's I, going on I, there?
1: Good, good observation there, Guy. And and I do wonder, you know, why were these these celibate priests so very interested and concerned about what women were doing underneath <laughs> their clothing? Um, but, but also... Uh, I think we know the answer <laughs> to that one. <laughs> well, it, it could have been, you know, a prurient interest or it could have been just simply... Good old fashioned misogyny, like anything women do, we're just going to scold them. Uh, I think there was a, a, a very robust history of that as well. Just sure. whatever women do for fashion, it's it's bad and naughty, and we need you to be smaller. Please contain yourself. So yes, there were there were those there were uh, there was this wonderful poem uh, by Eustache Duchamp, who's sort of what I, I consider him sort of the French version of Chaucer at the same time period, and he wrote uh, this this poem that says women should take pity on the breast, basically, uh, and describes methods that women were, were using to contain and control their their bosoms. Um, and it's it's a wonderful, it's just a poem and it's meant to be funny, but it's extremely educational for, for the likes of us trying to understand what did right. people do in this time period. So, yeah, we take our knowledge where we can. And so that's... Yeah, and, that, and
0: if the yeah, priests brought, are railing against it, you know people were doing it.
1: Of course, exactly. So that bra was probably one of the most exciting finds from the time period. There were others, too. I mean, that trove brought us so much information about Central Europe in the late 15th century, especially women's clothing. But there was one piece that came out of it that we know was probably a man's garment. And that was a pair of what we'll call bikini braids. They were just these... Wow, speedos! Speedos! Yes, yeah, string bikini. It was a string bikini style that men wore. He had a posing pouch.
0: <laughs> ah! <laughs> I did not know that many evil men wore posing pouches. Well, yep, at least a one. Bit of a one
1: banana hammock, I will say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. and And you can tell because the garment is cut in such a way that it's very wide at the base, which on a woman makes really no sense. It would just bunch up. Um, but on a man creates a pouch when you wear it so it,
0: right it works space. very yeah.
1: well for men mm-hmm. so that's a okay. really interesting find
0: wow yes okay. I, I I can imagine wow. okay. so if there was you know if you had your druthers what what surviving clothing would you get yourself permission to go and you know Disassemble if you, if you are allowed or, you know, handle or take apart and measure. and
1: That's a great question. Uh, there are several pieces out there I'd love to get my hands on. I mean, obviously, the Charles de Bois Bourbon is was my first love, and I have sure. never felt it in my hands, and I'd love to do that. I don't know if that will ever come to pass. But there's also a really interesting um, garment in Portugal, Uh, from roughly, I think, the 1370s. That's what we would maybe modern day refer to as a jupon. Um, It's this sleeveless, padded garment that may have some quilting. It might be interior underneath the top layer of the fabric. It's really not clear to me based on the sources i've seen so far and the photos i've seen so far exactly how that was constructed and i would love to be able to go there and see that in person Um, and that one yeah i think that's like i said 1370s if i recall Um, there's also a fragment of a garment in romania of all places um that i'm fascinated to learn more about because it has buttons, still extant on it, and I'd love to just take a look at the techniques used there uh, for the buttonholes. Uh, Another topic that is near and dear to my heart is teaching people how to do a proper medieval buttonhole. Yes.
0: How does one do a proper medieval buttonhole?
1: Well, you make it, I think, it should look boxy. In other words, it should look like a rectangle. Uh, The ends should be straight and uh, you basically fill it in with buttonhole stitch from end to end. It sort of looks like a double-sided comb. If you can imagine that. Yeah. Um, and many of the extant garments do have that style on it. Not every garment. Not every garment. There are other kinds of buttonholes that are <laughs> certainly extant in this period. Um, but that's sort of the ideal. And in the martial world, it seems to be, or at least in the masculine um, space, that seems to be how the buttonholes were were constructed. So,
0: Okay. Yes. That, that's completely different to holes for points, though, where... Deadly circular correct and yes. and you, you yes the person who made my arming jacket was very careful not to break any of the threads so she she kind of pushed the threads of the linen apart with some pokey thing to make a little hole and yeah. then stitched around it so that the the fabric is actually intact so it's, it's much less likely to tear so with those buttonholes are they using like a chisel to kind of cut out a, a slip or
1: Exactly so. Um, in the case of okay. buttonholes, you can't <clears throat> avoid. You have to cut the. the you things. have to cut it. Yeah. Yes, but you are correct that for the eyelets or you know the holes that were made for points um, are usually best created by using an awl that graduates from pointy up in size to circular, and then you you know, just wedge it in and sort of. <clears throat> I don't know if those sound effects will come across well in audio, but. Um, You do want to spread them and break them as least as possible. And then there's two sewing techniques you can choose from uh, that are both uh, documented to this time period, which is you can either use a buttonhole stitch to make sort of a a sunburst where your knots on the buttonhole stitch are facing the hole, not outside on the fabric. Um, That comes later. That's sort of a a method that uh, evolves decoratively later in the 16th century. Uh, But for the 14th and probably 15th century, the buttonhole stitch was applied so that the knots reinforce the opening, which has obvious benefits, right? We want want to keep those openings strong and tense and able to withstand the pressure of a lace really pulling on it. And the best way to Mm -hmm. do that is with a buttonhole stitch that's just done spirally or not spiral circularly Um, the other option is just plain old whip stitching which is just looping the thread in and out of the hole and uh, again making that starburst uh, look from it and so both both exist Um, I use the buttonhole stitch because I like to reinforce the the eyelet
0: okay so but for your buttonholes how would you like people to do it
1: With the buttonhole stitch, which is a a known documented stitch, I I don't think I should try to describe it here, but it it essentially forms a knot. Each stitch creates a little knot. And um, you would make your buttonhole stitches parallel to each other, the same height, so that you get a nice, even uh, rectangle of stitches across one side of the slit fabric. And then you would Mm -hmm. come back to the other side of the fabric and perform that same set of stitching all the way across on the other side and when you're done you have what is essentially a rectangle shape
0: so So, how do you do the ends the ends of the slip
1: well there's something called that's where it's
0: most like the tear
1: you'd think you'd think um you can reinforce it with with straight stitching up and down um a Mm. bar tack is, is the modern term for that um but the actual extant ones, even the ones on the little red coat armor, the ones on the uh, Charles pourpoint, Pourpoint, these don't have a lot of reinforcing on either end. The goal of buttons is not to contain the body in a tight uh, bit of clothing that has a lot of tension on it. Buttons by nature are not as stable as lacing for something like that. If you want to reshape the body or be tight around the body, really tight with tension, that's where eyelets will do the job better the holes, the little round holes, um, and and a lace. The um, buttons are really just to keep a form, like a form fitting and skimming garment closed on the body, but not something that's truly tight. So you don't need to have that deep reinforcement on the ends for that purpose.
0: Ah, uh, you okay, see, so, because I'm just thinking about the, the button that holds my trousers together, and that definitely needs some reinforcement.
1: Sure, sure. And and again, it's all a matter of how tight is this garment, right? If you know it's going to be really tight. <laughs> Getting
0: or, or tighter for- in my case.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we, okay. we all uh, battle the bulge.
0: <laughs> um, all right, so... If someone wants to start making their own historical clothing, how would you recommend that they get started? This Probably is a not with the reproduction of the pork
1: <laughs> Right, right. This is a tough one. Um, while I do have that pattern book that goes through every single step with an illustration, a really determined beginner could make one. I want to just say that we have had people do that as their first sewing project and they've done it wow. well. It's quite termination. a termination. I don't actually recommend it as your first project. <laughs> it's possible, but I don't recommend it. Um, I would say if they're interested in this time period that we've been discussing, there is an excellent book out there. It's been out there for about 20 years by Sarah Thursfield called The Medieval Tailor's Assistant. And I think it's, she's in her I second it, edition yeah. these days. And um, you can get that on Amazon it's pretty widely available uh, but it's it's a fantastic beginner's introduction to all the types of layers that people wore in this time period we'll, we'll call it mid for, early 14th through mid late 15th century, in um, certainly in England, um, but probably also suitable for most of Western Europe as well, and maybe even parts of, of Eastern Europe. Um, but it goes through things like the hosen, the braise, those are the underwear, the shirt you would wear underneath your coat, your coat or your kirtle, it's another term for almost synonymous to coat uh, in, the, in the texts of the time, and um, your gowns, which would be more elaborate garments that you'd wear uh, in fancier or cold, you know, colder occasions. Um, they're just more voluminous garments usually. And, um, and then your accessories. And she gives you patterns in there that you can extrapolate and use you know, visually, see the pattern, and then extrapolate it to a full-size piece of paper. Um, and I just think it's an excellent resource for people just starting out. So I recommend that book. Um, okay. As far as online resources, that's a little tougher because I don't know of any site that systematically, pedagogically goes through the process of teaching you everything you need to know to become a good sewist and a good patterner uh, and, and a good researcher. Because if you're really interested in doing this right you need a certain amount of knowledge too that's beyond just the crafting knowledge, just the, the sewing ability or the patterning and tailoring ability. You also need to know why you're doing it the way you're doing it and then make those choices appropriately. If that's your goal, if you're a LARPer, maybe you just want to get it in the ballpark. You just want to feel, you know, it's sort of like Lord of the Rings Hmm. version of of medieval aesthetic we'll say. Um, But if you are trying to do this for a, a serious reenactment or living history group, You're going to have to put the hours in and it's going to be multiple different sources, including lots of books. (laughs) I recommend books to this day. I think there's tons of knowledge that is in books and journal articles that is not webbed and is not in a video, is not on a podcast. It's just one of those put in your dues read the actual yeah. uh, scholars on these topics. And then you have to synthesize. You have to take all these disparate sources and put them together in a meaningful way. And for me, that's the fun. That's what I love to do. So uh, that's what I recommend.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Now I have a couple of questions that I ask all my guests. and um, The first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet?
1: I am very partial to Italian clothing. I, I just love the aesthetic of the medieval Italian look uh, that is seen in, in the figural art and some of the extant clothing that still exists. And I would love to do a deep dive on specifically Northern Italian clothing or even just all of Italy, whatever's available, and do sort of a comprehensive Book on the topic. Um, some <gasps> people have done books on that topic, <laughs> but I haven't done it. I haven't. I haven't done it because it's quite the undertaking, and I don't speak Italian, which is a huge barrier. Um, and that's and that's a big problem. Not actually reading or speaking the language. So it's a dream. It's a dream I have. I don't know if so I'll get step to step one. In the
0: learn time, Italian.
1: <laughs> right, just simply. Oh, and, go ahead. And, just learn that language. Yeah. You know, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, people do. it So all that the time. that would be my dream. That would seriously. be seriously sure. Oh, absolutely. And and okay. reading, reading is okay. different, right? Reading, you can learn to read a language <laughs> much faster than speaking.
0: Yeah, really, it's a lot easier to learn to read a language than it is to understand what an Italian person has just said to you. Because when it's read, right. you can read it as slowly as you want, and you can look words up as you go, and it's like you know you can yeah, you you can right. sort of take right. it apart whatever. But but you know if you're in a in a pub and Italians are talking very, very fast and there's like six of them speaking at once following that. That is super hard. That is uh, hard. I fail at that generally. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, learning to read Italian, it's not that hard.
1: No. Really. I, I, and and honestly, I promise. My, promise. my experience. i will not regret we, it. <laughs> <laughs> and re, you know, I, I can sort of read French to some degree. And um, that certainly informs my understanding of Italian because you can see the roots the Latin roots are similar and you can extrapolate and understand. So my reading comprehension is a little better. I mean, I have no speaking comprehension at this point, but, um, but I can, I can piece together some of the written, written sources. So yeah, maybe, I mean, that's one of those, it takes years. Maybe I'll do it. We'll see. We'll see where life takes me.
0: But also what the way I would go about it is I would start writing the book immediately. Right. And then when I need to do some research that requires some other skills, go get those skills and do that research and add it to the book. Right. Because that Mm -hmm. way you have a really concrete reason for actually doing the next thing.
1: Right. Um, And I do have many, many colleagues and friends and, you know, in Italy who do this work. Um, And even there's a friend I have in in Germany who does uh, specifically this this topic as well. So it would be a collaborative effort. I can't imagine doing this all by myself. Um, I think I would enrich such a work with that collaboration um, because I would need it. I would need it and they would have access to things that I wouldn't know about. So I, I do dream of doing right. that someday, a joint project.
0: I think I. I think there's no day like today.
1: <laughs> Thank you for the Chapter encouragement. Chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the encouragement.
0: All right. Okay. as, as when it comes out, let us know. Come back on the show. Tell us all about it. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, my last question. Somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. Or in your case, it doesn't have to be historical martial arts. It could be historical fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. How would you spend it?
1: I, you know how there are these writing retreats? That are available to people who do fiction writing, or um, there are creative retreats where you can you can get a grant to go to a beautiful location with others who are doing similar things and spend you know a week or six weeks in an intensive environment on that topic or at least on that effort. Um, oh, I've lost you. Shoot, I don't know if you can hear me, Guy. Can you hear me?
0: No, you, hear you went. Me? You went away.
1: Am I back? uh, Okay. Should I start? Should I start that again? Because I don't. You you know there are
0: these retreats.
1: Yeah, there are these retreats that people can go to spend, say, anywhere from a week to maybe six weeks, writing or doing some particular creative endeavor in an idyllic environment, and it helps their creativity. It helps them synthesize new uh, projects and thoughts, and usually there are grants for these sort of things. I would love to start an organization that creates that environment for people who are interested in historical clothing. So whether it's a, a long conference where people come together from all over the world to cross-pollinate their, their knowledge and ideas and, and teach classes on the topic, or it's just an actual retreat where people can spend time um, doing things like writing their medieval Italian book on clothing, um, that would be a fun thing to do with a million dollars for seed money. Although in today's economy with the inflation being what it is, maybe I'd need 5 million. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure, but it would be a lot of fun to bring people together yearly for such, uh, gatherings and creative creative get togethers. Yeah. That would be my. Yeah. Sort of like,
0: sort of
1: like, what, you know, Greg, my husband has, you know, he, he's involved with WMAW and there are others like that, like sword retreats. You have sword retreats, similar, you know, like it'd be great to have an historical clothing retreat. So.
0: And I think you would need, um, people who know how historical movement work to come along and try some of the clothes and, you know, cause we, we have it, we have it both ways. Like, you have to try your historical interpretation of a sword fighting art in clothes of the period because clothing affects movement. Um, but if we Absolutely. know that this motion was required in this art, therefore that clothing must be able to accommodate that motion. So the Absolutely. the information flow goes in both directions. So I think I think when you organize one of these things, you should invite me to come along <laughs> and model the clothes and make sure that they move properly.
1: That's a great that's, idea, Guy. You're that's right. That's a good idea, That is really true. That people need to use the clothing so that you can improve the cut and the function of it over time. And that's how I—that's how I became somewhat of a tailoring expert. Was giving my clothing to people actively using it in a martial context, and then getting their feedback, and that would improve the next version that I created based on their their use. Yeah, absolutely. There
0: we go. Excellent. Well, if I had the money, I'd give it to you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tasha. It's been lovely talking to you.
1: It was great talking to you too, Guy. Thank you for having me. This has been a delight.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tasha. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes 4 eBooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week for a slight change to the usual procedure. Instead of me interviewing somebody else, I will be answering listener questions. So listeners to the podcast have sent me in questions and I shall be answering them. And some of them are rather more serious than others. So um, you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, do leave a review. Oh, and I should probably point out that this Ask Me Anything Ask Guy Questions episode is something of an outlier. We will be returning to our regular interview schedule the week after. Do tune in and have a listen because some of the questions really came out of left field. And I had to think pretty hard to answer them. So um, I enjoyed answering them. And I think you may enjoy listening to them. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And if you have an extra minute, do leave a review as I ask every week. But most importantly, if you've enjoyed this episode, as I'm sure you have, please do share it with your friends. It does make all the difference. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week.